Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Today's episode, for the most part, it's I guess the latter half of the episode, is just a reposting of the exclusive content that I tend to put on the Patreon page. As I've mentioned, you can subscribe to the P- Thousand Movie Project Patreon. I think there's a $5 option and an $11 option. And if you do so, you get bonus episodes, which are a little more off the cuff, a little more intimate. The content that I put exclusively there from now on, I think, is the stuff pertaining to Cuba Fruit, the book that I'm working on. Art- artsy kinds of chat and personal stuff. It is kind of a reprieve because I don't have to worry about, you know, making it all tie together or having the ending link back to the beginning. It's just more of a riff. Prior to getting into that, though, there was a, there were a couple of things I wanted to talk about, like, in the vein of just riffing, and they both, like, they all have to do with yesterday's shift at the bar. Yesterday was Tuesday, and I worked from 10.30 until about 10.30, and I had these two striking encounters, both of them in the evening, and both of them involving short, bald men in their 50s. They each came in, and they sat with me for about an hour, and weirdly, even though last night was fairly busy at the bar, both of them were there at such an hour that they were the only customer I had, and so I was able to talk to them at great length, and they both divulged incredibly intimate shit to me. Both of them I had seen before, and both of them told me things that I did not know. Things that changed the way I looked at them, and I'm not going to reveal exactly what those things were, but I just want to touch on certain elements of their confession. It felt almost preordained. It felt like weirdly, I don't know, it felt like a weird kind of symmetry that the universe would have put there. I don't normally feel that way about things that happen in my daily life, but I think it's, there is something that happens where, because on the days that I work at the restaurant, I don't do anything creative the entire day. I wake up at like seven and then I'm doing chores from like seven to 10. And then at 10, I leave for the restaurant and I am at the restaurant until like 10.30 p.m. or 11. Then I go home and like, I just knock the fuck out. And so I think that my creativity, my imagination is kind of like throbbing at the walls. It's like kind of feeling claustrophobic. And so every now and then it cracks through and it imposes some sort of creative hippy dippy notion about some sort of cosmic symmetry. Or just start seeing little nuances, like like the kinds of subtext in a situation that an author might put there. There's one thing, for instance, that I wanted to talk about a while ago. I, I like I attempted to script it, but I kept not feeling comfortable with how I was presenting it. Also, I was having to contend with the fact, and oh my god, this used to always drive me crazy in therapy. Like, something would happen to me in my daily life, and I would think, fuck, I'm not going to therapy for another six days, so I just gotta brood on this thing alone. And so, yeah, for the next six days, I would brood, and I would consider all the nuances, and then fucking, it's the day for my therapy session, I go into my therapist's office, I sit on his couch, I unleash the tirade, and it lasts for like 45 seconds. Like 45 seconds to communicate not only the meat of the situation, but also like the meat of my six day rumination. There is a kind of emotional blow. It's almost like a blow against your sense of self, your sense of your own identity. When you realize that the things 
the things over which you are so tormented and the shit that you spend so much time dwelling on and worrying about, it can be easily communicated in 45 seconds and it's actually not that interesting. And that's what was happening in this anecdote that I had been, that, something that had happened at the bar months ago and I was trying to script it. It kept taking a long time to explain and then I was realizing after like page six of every iteration of the script, like, oh, this is actually not that interesting. And the meat of it is this, and I'm not, this is not scripted, so I'm just gonna give you like the, the fucking gist of it, the spark notes. This couple came into the bar and it was a man and a woman. They were both in their mid thirties. The dude was a surgeon and she was a nurse. And they both, they revealed after a little while, cause they were the only ones at the bar. It was a Tuesday night. And they revealed that they both work in the same hospital in pediatric oncology. So they both work all day, every day with children who have cancer. And on Tuesday nights, we have this two-for-one thing with beer. And so they're drinking a great amount of beer. And because they and I are in a sort of similar situation in life, obviously I'm not doing like pediatric oncology. I'm not facing that shit. What I'm referring to is the fact that I am now 30 and I find that when I am in conversation with people who are like three to five years on either side of my age, we are, we're kind of, especially if they're professionals or they're recently out of their trade school, whatever, we're in a situation where we are like newly cemented into the regular machinations of adulthood and accountability and politics and shit. And we're, we feel like we have finally stepped up to the adult stage. Everyone is done with school. We're in our professions and we're trying to figure shit out. And so what they ordered was well, like, they had like four beers and then they were like, okay, we're gonna have a large pizza with extra cheese and extra pepperoni. So I put it in bleep, 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 and then we get back to talking. And because we're in similar phases of life, even though we're doing very different things, our conversation starts moving inexorably towards topics like, you know, how, how one derives meaning from their line of work, financial security, the things that you sacrifice in exchange for financial security. Do you have children? Do you live in a, in a big city or do you move to a suburb or do you move to a small town? All the up in the airs of being a fucking youngish adult. But the thing is, even as the conversation is moving inexorably toward those heavier topics, the fucking dude, he's funny and he's irreverent he's, and he, he's, a, he's a loud jokester. Kind of like Robin Williams. I don't know if you guys watch Family Guy. I know it's not in vogue anymore, but one of my all-time favorite jokes from Family Guy is they're doing an impersonation of Robin Williams and the Robin Williams iteration goes, ho, ho, one good one out of every 10, ho. That is exactly what Robin Williams' brand of humor has always been to me. One good joke out of 10. And that's what this fucking doc, this surgeon was like. And it was just joke after joke after joke. And he would lean over the bar and widen his eyes and raise his voice. And after a while, it got really fucking exhausting. Legitimately funny, but you can only, I get laughed out. I remember this being a problem when I went to see movies in theaters like Jackass 3 and Borat, is that I would laugh really, really hard in the first 15 minutes, and then I'm just constitutionally incapable of laughing for another two or three hours. So anyways, their pizza is done, and I go to the expo line to get it for them, and I'm like, oh, thank God, because I get to relax my aching cheeks, because I've been, I've been forcing this smile for a while, because I'm all laughed out. But anyways, I go to get their pizza, and I see that the cook made it with extra cheese, but only an, a normal amount of pepperoni. And so I said to the cook, like, hey, they wanted double pepperoni. And the cook is clearly not happy with the fact that I am not happy with his achievement. So he says, all right, give me a minute. I go back to the bar, a couple minutes go by, they call me for the pizza. So I go to the expo line again. He hands me the pizza. And similar to something I mentioned in the last episode about pita bread, there is a hostile amount of pepperoni on this pizza now. A clearly 
passive aggressive amount of pepperoni because remember this pepperoni this pepperoni pizza also has extra cheese and now you cannot see the cheese it looks like a gigantic wound so i take this big cheesy cold sore on its pan to the bar and I give it to the people, the, the couple, the doctor and the nurse, and they are laughing at it because they see what I see, which is that this is the product of an insulted cook. And so whatever, they, they, they get into it. Also, and this is a fucking digression, sorry, but I too indulge that kind of passive aggressiveness. Let's do a little transition here. So there is this couple and they come into the restaurant and they are the, I'm gonna get back to what we were talking about. This, this couple is the worst couple I've dealt with one one woman in particular. It's two women. They're in their fifties. The first time she came in, she the first time I served them, they wanted to sit outside, and I was bartending. So I go around the bar, I cross the restaurant, I go outside to this patio table where they have sat down, and the the one of, of these two guests who is particularly odious, she goes, "Oh, look at this! I want to show you something." And she opens her purse and she brings out a wet nap, and she drags the wet nap down this black patio table. And when she turns the wet nap up to show it to me, it is smeared black. It is smeared with dirt. And she goes, oh, how do you guys let your tables get like this? I just don't understand. And I said, well, there, I see the dirt. And the reason is because you are sitting in the outside. If you wanted to sit on the inside, you would find that the climate is much better regulated and the tables are not smeared with dirt. However, you are sitting and have chosen to sit in the outside where the dirt lives. I mean, I wasn't that sort of verbose about it, but I was pretty passive aggressive. And then she has to speak with the manager and I continued to serve them in a kind of detente, but they got their whole meal comped, which was her goal from the beginning. Obviously you do not sit in an outside table and then openly lament the fact that there are like leaves on it and little specks of dirt. She just wanted free shit and she got it. She comes into the restaurant a few days later with her girlfriend and fucking has another problem and gets her meal comped or a portion of her meal comped saying that the person who served her, not me, was was like a dick or whatever. I'd seen her a few more times and I, I didn't have to, to endure the fucking indignity of serving them again. But every time they were at the restaurant, I would walk by their table. And every time I walked by their table and I caught a snippet of their conversation, it was always the most odious of the pair, the one who's always complaining. Every time I heard her in conversation, she was complaining about the price of something in her life. The price of getting her car repaired, the fact that a bunch of the units in her building, like the price has gone up like $200. She's just cheap, 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 cheap. So one night, a couple weeks ago, like, I'm fucking slammed. I have no customers at the bar, but I am having to make dozens of drinks for all the servers. After a while, a server comes up to me and she goes, hey, my, uh, someone at my table said that uh, the bartender watered her drink down. Mind you, the person at the table did not say, hey, I think my cocktail is a little weak. This was personal. She said my bartender, she attacked my integrity. She, she said that the bartender had watered down her drink. And I was like, okay, which table is this? The server points. I look in the direction of her finger, and as you can imagine, it is the odious pair. It is the witches of Coral Gables. And I'm in such a fucking mood, I'm so heated. And so I go, I go around the bar, I cross the restaurant, I go to their table, and for a moment, the three of us just look at each other. And it's just bad blood in the air right away. And so I break the silence by going, so, I hear there's been an accusation. And when I think about it now in retrospect, like it's kind of funny to me that I just get, I take this shit so fucking personally. Obviously, it has nothing to do with me. This is not personal. They just want something for free. Like it is amusing to me in retrospect, but I also have to take into mind, like I am legitimately jeopardizing my job by indulging these little temperamental flares. Anyways, I was like, hey, 
I heard there's been an accusation. And the woman was like, yeah. And she like held, she stuck to her guns and gave me like a dismissive look. And she was like, yeah, there's, there's water in this. It was a gin and tonic. And I was like, I did not pour any water in it. Just, just to be clear, I poured the tonic from the bottle and I, you got, you have two ounces of gin in there. And then she shrugs and she, she looks away from me and she cocks her lip and she goes, well, I guess I've just forgotten the way gin tastes. And so I was like, okay, I'll resolve this issue. I'll be right back. And then I went to the bar and I poured her three ounces of gin in a cup and I walked back and I clacked it down and I was like, sorry for the inconvenience. And then I just went back and I started making drinks and I was seething. I was kind of proud that I got away with my little passive aggressive gesture. And then, well, like a little over an hour later, I saw them get up to leave. And one of them, the, the one who doesn't complain about things, she had to help the other one out of her chair. She was so fucked up. And that's not a good thing. Like I got, and I'm still dicey about this question of like, that terminology of, oh, I got, as a bartender, I got someone fucked up. I don't know if that's really the case. I do realize that was a problematic solution, if you can call it a solution. It was an outburst. It was a microaggression. It was not a healthy thing. Back to the fucking story about the pediatric oncologist and the nurse. So we are back in the restaurant. I am bringing this large, extra cheese, angry pepperoni pizza to the two people, and they receive the pizza and they're laughing about it. Ha ha, this is all crazy. This is so much food and then they order two more beers. And now they're getting drunk, not irresponsibly drunk, but just joyously drunk. And eventually I'm like, hey, I'll leave you guys to your food. And I walk away and I, you know, I go to the back of the restaurant. I tuck ice chips into my cheeks and massage them for a reprieve from all these sort of forced smiles and chuckles. And then I was thinking like, these people confided that, yeah, they're very happy-go-lucky, but their work is pretty grueling. Every day they're dealing with children who are dying slowly and painfully, or they're being subjected to treatments for their illness, which are slow and agonizing. And the podcast that I had tried to script about it was that I saw some kind of parallel between the fact that this youngish professional couple, in their job every day, they are subjected to such extremes of grief and horror and pain. And then in an attempt, I guess the way that they get through their lives in order to sort of cope with that excess of horror that they confront every day is they, is they, they take on excess in every other realm of life. They don't just want a pizza, they want the biggest pizza we have. They don't want cheese on it, they want extra cheese. They don't want pepperoni, they want extra pepperoni. They don't want a beer, they want five beers, six beers. Anyways, that was a digression in itself. There was a digression in the digression. I'm sorry, we were talking about the two bald dudes who confessed something to me at the bar. So both of these guys, they sit down and uh, like an hour apart from each other, um, they confide to me about mistakes they have made in their lives that have driven away the women with whom they had long relationships, the women who sort of helped them keep their demons at bay. With one of the guys, he was saying it was infidelity. He got caught cheating on his wife of 20 years, who he was always readily acknowledging was his soulmate. And he was like, I was just, I was, you know, trying to live life on the edge or something. And I fucking, I fucked around and she got, and I got caught. And then the other guy was saying, you know, he, he just was a, a suffocating control freak and he drove his wife away. But also he said at the time that he did it, his wife had thyroid cancer. He w was like an emotional wreck while she was going through treatment. And then at the end of it, she was like, okay, I just survived this. I've got a new lease on life. And I realized that the life I was spending with you was totally suffocating. And I know you love me and you mean the best for me, but I don't see you ever overcoming your need to conquer everyone's life. And so she went off and, you know, did her thing. But so these two dudes, 
they talk and they talk and they talk and I've served them both in the past and whenever they come in, I ask them questions, I give them alcohol, they drink a great deal. And both of them last night repeated something that they had said to me that a lot of people say to me when I give them that treatment, which is this. They make a certain point, they take a deep breath, they lean back, and then they look at me and they go, God, it's so refreshing to talk with a smart person for once. I know it's a compliment, and so I'm flattered by it in some respect, but I'm also kind of not flattered because there are a few things going on when they say that. For one thing, they invariably say to me, oh, it's so nice to speak to someone who's smart in conversations where I have not said very much. What I have done is I have given them alcohol and I've asked them a series of questions that I do think demonstrate that I'm, pay I'm paying very close attention to what they're saying. And I'm also always giving them the benefit of the doubt and I'm mindful of their feelings and, and I'm very respectful in the way that I present these questions. And so I think it is a pairing of them drinking alcohol and hearing themselves have the opportunity to flesh out their own life story. A life story in which very often they are not to blame for anything. I, I just got a vibe, like, the implication of their saying that I am smart is that I have allowed them to talk at length, to explain their opinions, and I am very smart for, for choosing, for allowing them to do so. Like, I am smart because, because I understand that these men understand. One of these guys was talking to me, not one of these two men, but it was a while ago, and he was talking to me about politics, and he's a regular at this bar, and our politics do align, and so uh, he speaks very openly with me. And one day, he was at like the bottom of his third gin and tonic, maybe, and he did that thing, he leaned back, he was like, God, it's good to talk to someone who, who gets it, someone who's smart, for once. Which also implies that these men go about their daily lives thinking that m the majority of people they encounter are not smart, and I know this is maybe like emotionally reductive, but the way that that strikes me is it's like these people, they're in pain about something. Um, they have opinions and no one asks for their opinions. No one defers to their insights. And so these opinions build up inside them and they accumulate pressure and they start to ferment. And they've got these opinions, and every day they look at the newspaper and they see that buildings are collapsing, people are getting shot, presidents are lying, bills are getting stymied in, in, in the Senate, and they just imagine this correlation of like, no one is listening to me, and every day the newspaper suggests that the world is falling apart, there must be a relation between those, those two things. Corvidal once wrote something like, there is no problem on earth that could not be easily resolved if people would simply do as I tell them. And that's the vibe I get off of these dudes, but I was telling you about the gin and tonic guy. The gin and tonic guy, he reaches the bottom-ish of his third gin and tonic, whatever, he's been riffing about politics, and then he leans back and he goes, you know, I want to start a political party and I want to call it the goddamn common sense party. It's the political party for people who just vote on with their goddamn common sense. And he was very tickled about it, whatever. But it reminded me of something that the Surgeon General said on the Ezra Klein show. He said, look, I've been in the White House and I've been in these rooms where for, you know, five or six hours, a dozen of a dozen brilliant people are sitting in a circle and they are all privy to confidential information, which is which means that they have a strong, they have a more rounded understanding of national crises than than you do. And all these brilliant people with all of that understanding in all of this time, do you honestly think that no one in that time in that room came up with the solutions that you have come up with while sitting here drinking three gin and tonics on a Tuesday night? Of course they came up with your solution, but there is something about the situation that you don't understand that that keeps your solution from being viable. Anyways, 
The episode is not supposed to be this long. I was just gonna fucking riff about my job yesterday and, uh, and then sort of segue into what you're about to hear, which is uh, a sample of the, the kind of exclusive Patreon episodes for Thousand Movie Project podcast. So this is the end of the new thing. Let's segue into the, into the next thing. Thank you for listening, and I hope that what you hear now, if it is of any interest at all, will maybe compel you toward becoming a patron. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Thousand Movie Project and donate 5 or $10 a month and keep this show on the road. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and if you're listening to this, it's because you're a patron of the Thousand Movie Project podcast, and I like that about you. Something I've been thinking about um, for the past couple days is like, going vegetarian, not completely. Every now and then I'll do it for like a week, or maybe ten days, or sometimes three days, and then I just, I, I lapse. But I've realized like, one of the problems with my little ventures into vegetarianism here and there, and it is incidentally one of these things where I notice a conspicuous difference. It's the same thing with meditation, actually. Every now and then... For a, for, a, for a streak of a few days, I'll take meditating seriously and I'll notice substantive differences, not just like later in the day kinds of things where people talk about like, oh, I sleep better or I'm more disciplined or I, I, I don't lose my temper as easily. The meditation benefits for me are more like in the moment where apart from like calming down, this it's like there's a table that opens up in my mind and all of my issues, everything that I'm hung up on or all the problems I'm trying to resolve mentally or where I'm trying to take a story that I'm writing, it's all laid out very neatly suddenly. I don't know, my mind is just way more efficient and they're more like concentrated thinking sessions, which I know apparently that's like not what meditation is supposed to be. It's supposed to be like a total clearing of your mind and you're just like, I don't know, sensing your surroundings. And maybe you're feeling the air conditioner on your skin and you're feeling the fabric of your clothing and of the couch that you're on or the bed. But I don't know, for me they're like nice concentration sessions. Anyways, so that works out for me, and then I abandon it for some reason. But another thing that works for me is, like, vegetarianism. And it's one of those things that I was very skeptical about, because the friends of mine who have sort of ventured into it, whether they've been able to sustain it or, like me, they just do it periodically, they all have these glowing stories of how, like, they poop like a ninja, and they sleep like a baby, and, it, like, it, all of their bodily functions have improved, and their disposition is just generally sunnier, their skin looks better, hair is more full and shiny or something. And I... And because they pitch it as such like a such like a, a rounded and irrefutably beneficial practice, something so simple, like I just don't, I don't know, I become skeptical about it. But I think one of the one of the impediments that I face in trying to go vegetarian or whatever is be, is the fact that I tend to think about vegetarianism the way I think about sobriety, which is to say, it isn't that you're, it, yeah, basically that you're going for a streak. Like, if you are 10 years sober, and then you have a drink, it's like, you know, you've just broken that streak, and now it's gonna take 10 years for you to get back where you were, and you're never gonna be able to say, you know, oh, 50 years sober or whatever. But my friend Steve Donahue is, like, more down-to-earth about it. He's a vegan, he just generally doesn't eat animal products, but, like, when someone says... So, you know, someone will point out that he, he made a reference to the fact that over the weekend he was staying with a friend, they made this dish that has an animal product in it, and Steve will say, look, I'm a vegan, I identify as a vegan to the extent that it's relevant in my daily life, 
but I'm not rabbinical about it. I'm not, he's not evangelical is what he's saying. And he doesn't act as though it's a do or die thing, that it's a lifestyle to which he must, you know, unfailingly adhere day in and day out. His veganism, his general veganism is predicated as much on, you know, health concerns as it is, you know, moral umbrage with what is done to animals, which makes all the sense in the world. And I have been told that if I watch enough of that, you know, slaughterhouse footage, which abounds on YouTube, that I will, you know, go resoundingly vegan automatically. But I'm not sure I want that. I think I want to do what Steve says he does, which is, especially if someone m makes him a dish with meat in it or, or dairy products, he will eat the dish. Um, and, you know, he won't get sick because it happens often enough. What he's saying is, like, he doesn't want to be rude. And, you know, if someone is giving him food as a as a gift, they're welcoming him into into their home, like, and they've made chicken, he'll eat the chicken. He won't eat much of it. He will lean toward the rice and the vegetables, but he will eat the chicken. And I think that's... I, the gamification of vegetarianism is the kind of thing that it makes it problematic or makes it hard to sustain. I think it's also kind of pitiable because if I'm looking at vegetarianism as like, okay, this, you know, vegetarianism is an identity of mine. It is a way of life. And if I eat a piece of chicken, it means I have compromised some facet of my identity and I'm going to be on the emotional ropes for a long time. If I ever needed that badge to sort of fill my little Boy Scout strip of identity symbols, that would be sad because it would suggest that, like, I don't have enough identity tied up in being a writer or, you know, th the son of these two people, the brother of that person, the employee of this institution, the practitioner of this craft or art, whatever. My identity is tied up in enough things that I think I ought to take an approach to vegetarianism that is relaxed. And so I'm not going to, like, come down hard on myself about it. This morning I went to um, I, the coffee shop I always go to. It's a place called Pure Roast. And in the event that I get a meal there, I just I usually just get a bagel with cream cheese, but they put a crazy amount of cream cheese on it. And I like, today I got light cream cheese. I know this doesn't sound like significant at all, but I was thinking that I understand with like Cuban toast, for instance. There, There's a Cuban bakery across from my apartment and they, I'm not joking, with a paintbrush that you use to paint the, the outside of a house, they use that to administer butter to the Cuban bread. And I can understand how Cuban bread and butter, although Cuban bread has a great texture and it is flavorful, it is, in a way, the vehicle for butter. The best thing, I think, irrefutably about bread and butter is the butter. And the same might be said of garlic bread, that the bread is a vehicle for the butter. The butter is the flavor, the bread is the texture. I think you could then go so far as to say that fucking, uh, you know, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, the bread is a vehicle for the peanut butter and jelly. You can say that of virtually any sandwich. You could even say that I think of Oreos, that the cookie is the fucking vehicle for the cream. But I really don't think that's the case with a bagel. I don't, like, maybe if you're making a sandwich out of a bagel, but not cream cheese. That peanut butter and jelly riff reminded me, my friend Paul we went to a bar once, and it was Sunset Tavern in South Miami, and uh, they told him, like, oh, we got a new beer on, on tap. It's a peanut butter and jelly-flavored beer. And Paul has a really fucking wicked sweet tooth, and he's very titillated by odd confections. I feel blessed that I have no sweet tooth at all. Every now and then, I'll drink a Sprite, but, like, I can't... Like, I, I, it's been a long time since I finished a can of Coke. Anyways, Paul's got a sweet tooth, and he likes weird shit, and so he got the peanut butter and jelly beer, and when they set the fucking pint down on the table, everyone recoiled. Not because of the odor, necessarily. It, it smelled very strongly, very poignantly, very specifically of peanut butter and jelly, but just the mental friction of knowing it was a beverage was kind of... made. It, 
made it repulsive. Paul took a sip, a couple sips, and he said, yeah, it tastes exactly like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and then he could not finish it. And then a few months after that, I was I was interviewing um, the head brewer at Vezasur in in Winwood, and I told him that story, and he was like, "Yeah, isn't that an interesting situation where it is a success in the sense that it tastes like a peanut butter and jelly, exactly like the brewer planned? It is a failure, however, in the sense that it tastes like a peanut butter and jelly, and it is supposed to be a beer." Speaking of weird food things, though, I, I was never really much of a shopper at Trader Joe's, but I do like to read kind of very straightforward business memoirs. Like, the best one I ever read is by Mark Echo. I think the book is called Unlabeled, and if you have even a modicum of entrepreneurial aspiration, I totally encourage that you pick up that book. It's really fucking good, really accessible. It shows how he, like, started making shirts in his garage as a teenager and selling them around high school, and how he sort of, as he got, as he started earning money, at first he did, like, fun shit, but then he just started pouring it back into the business, expanding the operation, marketing, and this is, like, in the late 80s, I think, early 90s. So it's like a nostalgia trip. It's a great story. But yeah, I'm reading this Trader Joe's biography because I'm super, well, not biography, excuse me. It, well, yeah, it's like his business memoir, but it's mostly about, I, I think I saw one review in the New Yorker say that it is, that it does for grocery stores what Kitchen Confidential did for restaurants. But dude, I read like 20 pages last night and it apparently Trader Joe himself was collaborating with a ghostwriter up until he died in 2020 at the age of 89 or 90 and the like the book just fucking reeks of the ghostwriter especially in the introduction but i don't like and i hate that it that that is the case but i also don't begrudge the ghostwriter because it's really it's a very sad job i think being a ghostwriter on the one hand generally it's generally the case that if you're a ghostwriter you're doing it just for the money you're not really passionate about going out and telling other people's stories there may be like glimpses here and there where you're very excited about a particular project it's very rewarding hopefully mostly financially but i think what what tends to be the case is you okay all right all right the reason my, my impression of why ghostwriters are generally not successful with their own writing and why they pursue ghostwriting as their full-time job is because ironically or maybe not one of the things that you really need to do in order to get a book published today is you first have to go out and make yourself famous on social media doing something so the people who get like a memoir book deal, generally they're already famous, or not generally, but it's very increasingly common that they are already famous from social media or some kind of business venture or they're an actor or a singer. And what is generally the case is that the people who have made themselves famous in some other arena, they are not writers. In most cases, they're probably not big readers either because they're very committed to whatever line of work it is in which they found great success. So they don't have time for reading. Maybe they're just not even interested in reading. And so, like, my dad used to be a criminal defense lawyer, like, right when he got out of law school. And he said that generally when he would meet the defendant, the defendant would often be cold and, like, a hard ass and totally unimpressed by him and his credentials and whatever. But then, once the defendant saw my dad do his defense and argue on this defendant's behalf before a judge, the defendant invariably warmed toward him, even if the argument by my dad's you know, standards, was a terrible argument, it just tended to be the case that these defendants have never in their life seen someone defend them. Defend them eloquently and with passion in front of a judge, and, they, and they're moved by the spectacle. And I think it's very often the case that these, you know, 
moderately famous people, these people who have a book deal for a memoir, they are not big readers. They don't really know what good writing is. So when the ghostwriter presents them with the manuscript, what they see is their own story being told back to them. And I think they tend to be moved by the fact that someone is telling their story back to them, took the time, even if they're being paid lavish sums, they took the time to sort of digest this person's life story. And so I think a client is maybe emotionally inclined to just give a green light to the book, no matter how maybe mediocre it is or how riven with cliches. But that's but like, that's the other trap is that the, the, the ghost writer, they love language. And in order to endure the struggle and maybe even the indignity of writing this book, they have to perform sometimes for their own edification, literary hijinks and, or, or they're just rushing the job. And so they resort to cliches. And so there's a lot of alliteration or weird literary references or puns. And so sometimes I'm reading a book, it's generally a memoir, like a business memoir or a celebrity memoir, and just the ghost writer's presence screams at me and it's so distracting and I really hate it. But at the same time, I'm torn because I know what a terrible situation, what an emotionally fraught situation both the ghost writer and the client are in. Last night, I picked up a shift at the restaurant, and um, while I was there, I hugged a colleague of mine who is a smoker. And my grandma was a smoker too, and even though I can't really be in the room with someone while they're smoking, there is a certain brand of cigarette, and I don't even know which one it is, it's the one that she smoked. But whenever I smell it on someone's lapel during a hug, I kind of lean in, and I hang there, because they smell to me like a Tuesday in 1997, and I'm like visiting my grandma's kind of stuffy, cramped apartment in Kendall, where she had she had the first ever CD burner that I ever saw, except I don't think she ever used it. I think she bought it with the intention of using it. She picked it up at a garage sale, but then never got around to it. She also had these very heavy glass figurines of the Marx Brothers. She used to go garage sailing every Saturday morning at 5 a.m. with her best friend Margaret, and she would do it until like noon. And I think when she would go to a, a church sale or a yard sale, whatever, and she wouldn't find anything interesting, she would just buy a candle to sort of, you know, just not go home empty-handed. And so over the years, her apartment like just accumulated candles and candles and candles. They were everywhere. Most of them had never been lit. And both my mom and my brother have very serious um, dust allergies. And I remember that when they helped my grandma move from that cramped apartment in Kendall to a condo in West Kendall, they were sneezing. They were sneezing for like five days afterward, and their eyes were very swollen and red. Also, there was a comic book shop on Sunset Drive in South Miami, and I used to love going there as a kid, but I could never dawdle. Not that I wasn't allowed to, it's just that my mom could not go inside because she had a, the dust allergy, and all these comic book boxes were like pluming dust at all times. But speaking of comic books, if you're wondering what I'm reading, for the past few days I've been like binging hard the books of David Shields. David Shields is one of my favorite essayists, and I am supposed to be interviewing him for the podcast Today is Monday, on Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m., and I don't know what it is. We had a very amiable email exchange, but there's something that gives me a vibe, like he's maybe not that interested in this. I don't know, maybe that's just my general apprehensions. But anyways, I want, like, the bulk of his work to be very fresh in my mind so that when we do speak, I can demonstrate right off the bat that I've been taking it very seriously, and my impression is that authors tend to warm to that. Anyways... That's I, enough about me. Anyways, thanks for listening, and more pointedly, thank you for your support. I'll talk to you next time.